Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Polities Podcast. I'm here with Sam Pearson. Sam, thanks uh, for coming on. Oh, <laughs> thank you for having me on. So, Sam, you are an electrician. Yes. And you are a hardworking man. Thank and, you. <laughs> I mean, I presume. This is what yeah. people say. I've never actually seen you at it. Uh, well, hopefully they're right. I mean... <laughs> But Sam's got uh, quite a quite a insight, I think, into the fragility and the workings of our industrial capitalist nation state, which is something we really like to talk about at New Polity, obviously, that a lot of our societies seem to be very desperately trying to build up um, cities of man, little Babylons, where when you look around the world, when you operate as technologies, when you go through life, you basically are protected from ever really coming into an encounter with creation and with the creator. That you basically can live this illusion, really, that everything comes from man. That man comes from man, and man's world comes from man, and that there's no need to look beyond. That's the broad sort of uh, theological problem I at least have when I wake up within modernity and say... I don't like it in here, <laughs> but you're out there and you're building its systems, right? You are you are working on its wires. So yes, I, I have thought I've thought extensively about the uh, moral conundrum of continuing to construct the system that I that I find not uh, not to be particularly edifying. Yeah, because you're not, and and to be clear, um, no judgment on this at all. You're not simply just you know updating someone's electric in their house you, you've actually sure. been quite familiar with the industrial side of yes of, of so uh i haven't done much residential work um really until fairly recently mm -hmm. um most of my career has been in commercial and industrial yeah uh and or some you know gradation in between the two yeah uh so yeah constructing constructing the systems from nothing or working very hard to maintain them yeah as they slowly fall apart <laughs> yeah I and mean, that's i want to talk a little bit about that you have a bleak view of um this country and i suppose most countries in terms of maintaining the immense complex infrastructure which we have put in place to do things like heat our burgers yes uh, yeah you know well, i mean what else can we do <laughs> Any country that buys into the the broader net of uh, I mean, of the broader technological system or the technological society, yeah. scare quotes if you want to use that, um, is is essentially on borrowed time. I mean, there's no other way to, and that's I guess a bit of a cliche, but uh, it's true. It's 100% true. The systems we've constructed are unsustainable. Mm -hmm. They they cannot be sustained, and the price of not sustaining them goes up immeasurably as as we continue to insist that we can sustain them. Right. No, for every technological problem, there's a technological solution, of course. Absolutely. And that means that there's more technological problems. Yes. And all problems are, uh, all solutions are problems in waiting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, let's talk more about that. What I want to first get an understanding of is what is the culture of work like? out there in your work because you're specific to trades to tradesmen to the kind of work and the kind of people that are actually maintaining the infrastructure of this country how's it going out there it's not going well <laughs> oh no uh, no 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 curses uh it's uh, it's it's not it's um the the state of the working class 
if you want to call it that. It's a good sure. as good a word as any. Um, I, use the word bleak. I'm gonna use it again. Yeah, <laughs> somewhat bleak. Um, there there is a not to get too deep in the weeds with Marx, but there there is the problem of alienation, and it's a very real problem. He was right about the problem, not so much about the solution. Sure. Um, and there is there is a complete buy-in to the culture of commodities and of no one steps outside to question why we would need to work and work and work and work and work harder, faster, longer hours, um, sacrifice the Sabbath to, uh, to do what exactly Mm. to do things that we have no personal stake in when you get right down to it and things that are like manifestly harmful. So you, you think the current culture here is, is workaholic is yes. Yes. Uh, um, this seems at odds though, with an analysis of culture that I often hear, which is of course that nobody wants to work anymore and everybody's on welfare. So how do you, how do you, uh, how do you put those two things together? Uh, I think what you're seeing is, um, is a, is a move to the extremes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, uh, and and it's kind of a self-perpetuating cycle. People are buying out of this, and I don't blame them. Um, oh, buying out of the need to yeah, work. That buying much. out, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. So the government provides you with a way to basically say, yeah, I'm not. If what work means is this workaholism, yes, then I would like to be. On I would. Welfare. I would prefer to not do that. <laughs> yeah. And if somebody can make that de- determination while still sustaining themselves, uh. Yeah, I can understand why somebody would come to that conclusion. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Because the culture of work, I, I don't, I can't speak to other countries when we've ever worked in the United States. Uh, but the culture of work in the United States is very disordered. It's incredibly disordered. Um, there is this expectation that your job, one, is an integral part of your identity. I mean, what is the first thing you ask somebody when you meet them? What do you do? Mm. As if it is, in, as if the. <laughs> working for a wage for a, for someone you don't know and have never met personally more than likely, uh, was this defining characteristic of your personality. Which, which not, um, not to pause you here, cause you're obviously, you're on, you're on a list of examples for the disordered nature of, of work today. I don't want to, I don't want to pause it, but it is fascinating, right? That when people are asked that question, they always hedge by making their job part of some larger category. It's like, <laughs> what do you do? Oh, I'm in marketing. What do you do? I'm in, you know, X. Sure. When the actual content of their day is, of course, filling out a spreadsheet or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Whereas you can see then with the with the skilled trades, there's a certain like gasping nobility that's still present where it's like, well, what do you do? I'm a carpenter because that means something. Yes. Um, it has a specificity to it where you are becoming like a carpenter, even as the world is becoming more like you through carpentry. So there's this mutual interpenetration of world and, and person, which is a very beautiful thing and it's what work ought to be yes so there's a there's a certain like naturalness to asking the question it's just like there's no good answer anymore because that may be a better way to put it (laughs) (laughs) wasn't that is to say what do you do is to say you know what's your place in building this temple up for god right sure uh i'm at a time i'm because i I suppose i was i was a little bit loose with my language i think it would be different it is different because for a craftsman yeah your craft is part of who you are Mm -hmm. but i would say that the the vast majority of what we charitably call work in the uh, current society we live in does not really rise to the level of of a craft necessarily. Um, a good chunk of jobs are just 
endless cycles of uh, monotony. Yeah. And they may be highly necessary, but they certainly aren't edifying in any meaningful way, and they certainly are not crafts. No, I mean, that's... I think immediately of... You you are the human equivalent of a gear. Sure. And I I think immediately about responses that people might give, because you definitely hear it more, more so from an older generation that's like, Look, yeah, you're a gear man, but you know you got to do that to support your family. So, sure. so get in there and be a gear, and um, don't look for some kind of uh, exalted notion of work. It's just work, you know. It's just you get in there, you grind to make your paycheck, and then you get out. So, I guess the maybe this is too much of like a putting a ball on the on the t ball thing, but like, why is that not an attitude that you can accept about work? Um. Because you can see the fruits of of that attitude, I, I understand. I understand the attitude. Mm-hmm. It's not that there's no truth at all to it. It's a very realistic picture of what we're facing. Sure. Um, and yeah, it is one way of coping with what we all into. I think everyone intuitively understands is a problem. Yeah. Uh, one way of coping with it is to essentially shut your brain off and just say, "I have to do this. I'm going to put up with it so that I can eat." Yeah. And uh, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> but that's that's not going to cut it. Not in the long run. Um, you can sustain that somewhat, especially when there is this this mythic progress fairy tale land held out in front of everyone, um, and everything seems to be getting better and better. But obviously, things are not getting better and better. We've seen the weaknesses yeah. of our of the larger systems that sustain modernity with the supply chain issues take your pick and so we've come to the to the point where there is a broader understanding of the spiritual crisis and people just cannot turn that off anymore right so you you see the the disorder of work first of all in the attempt to make what's essentially wage slavery right so like work the alternative to which is welfare i suppose uh and work that has no intrinsic meaning to it but has to be supplied meaning by some exterior force like i'm doing it for my family i'm doing it for the paycheck so i can do xyz that this has become a dominant form of work we're we're happy to say say 100 the dominant form of of abstracting yourself away from what you're doing to why you're doing it and you having to supply your own meaning because there is nothing meaningful coming forth from your effort is this basically what Marx meant by alienation? I mean, I, you you brought the word up earlier, and I yeah. <clears throat> I understand alienation to be alienation from your work, and then yes. from the commodity or the or the thing that you're working on. Yes, and it sounds like this is that first category. Yes, alienation from the work. Uh, Marx takes it somewhat further, also later on, when she says, uh, "As you're alienated from your work, you're alienated from broadly speaking, you're alienated from humanity." Mm. You're alienated from your own personhood. Yes, which I think is a pretty, uh, it's a pretty insightful critique. Um, well, John Paul obviously takes that up. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there is that, and like you said, there are degrees to which work has fallen into monotonous drudgery. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I-, I would say that generally speaking, the trend is for everything to be pushed down into monotonous treachery as they systematize every conceivable thing on the planet. Right. Um, 
because even the trades and and yes there is there is this knee-jerk prideful reaction if you're in by quite a few tradesmen of like no i i build buildings yeah. like i do a thing at which the end the end result of which is a physical structure yeah. that you can actually walk inside of yeah, yeah. Uh, or something tangible yeah. and and yes i i have that feeling myself a lot of the time it is satisfying to expend effort and at the end of the day week month however you want to call it end of a job you can look at what you have made and you can say i sacrificed certain things to construct this Mm -hmm. and yeah that that is there is a different feeling to that than to say i signed off on 50 pieces of paper that no one will read uh but even then before uh before we tradesmen get too uh too high on our horse here um you run into a couple of issues one is that the the trades in the modern era entrenched as they are in uh in the broader technological system i think bring upon themselves greater responsibility uh that they didn't ask for Mm. but what do you mean by that i don't know what you mean by that your role is direct in the way that certain people have indirect roles in sustaining a system that's fundamentally unsustainable. A tradesman has a direct role in sustaining a system that's fundamentally unsustainable. Uh, if I don't fix a machine, yeah. it doesn't work. Right. Um, right. Which is very different than if, if I, as HR manager, don't quite make Susie happy here in this situation, presumably production continues. Exactly. <laughs> production will carry on even if Susie's pissed. Yeah, like, right, 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 right. Okay, I see The, what you're the machine will continue running, but you know, if, if I, or collectively, if a trade were to say, we will not do X, then X will never get done. Yes. And all processes that depend upon that will cease. Right. And so every day we make a bargain with ourselves to get up and continue to attempt to prop it up to prop up our, our entire technological infrastructure that is yeah. basically our, our daily bread at this point and, and exactly and, and it's it's a bit of a, a a moral conundrum in some ways because you have to feed your family obviously yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. uh and you know i mean i i would say this as somebody who who is in a trade i'm i'm, I'm quite proud of my trade yeah uh and quite proud of some of the things that I've done. Mm-hmm. But looking back, when you when you contextualize them, I can't honestly look at them and say, not all of them, some of them, yes. Uh, I But there have been some things that I've done, and I was very proud of having done them because they were difficult, yeah. they required skill, yeah. they required, you know, take your pick Mm -hmm. uh but at the end i wasn't able to look at what i had done and say in in the context in the broader context i've improved someone's life Mm -hmm. instead you know i look at it and say i've done something that is contributing to a process that i think is deplorable so you so you helped you helped a walmart keep the light on something to that effect yeah right i see what you're saying and walmart is actually it's funny because Walmart used to be like my example for bad corporation, but at this point, like they're basically nice. <laughs> yeah. Like by the ch- relative changing of standards of what we should expect in terms of the evil. The Overton window has shifted. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and now Walmart is kind of uh, like kind of benign. Yeah. You want to go local? You want to go to a place? Yeah. 
the local Walmart, an institution. That's what they've always wanted. They just didn't realize they had to destroy the world to get it. Yeah, you know, <laughs> now that they've they've burned the earth and left it behind, okay. Walmart has become the local. So this is this is a, a tragedy, a tragedy, right? Because it's not. It's like you're describing alienation from the common good. Because at the end of the day, whatever your um, whatever your work is, like it has a good to it when considered in itself. It's like okay. Uh, and I'm going to betray my utter ignorance of electricity here, but, um, you know, because of my knowledge, my skill and my labor, um, I have enabled a process to work, right? The switch is here. The machine turns on there. Right. And this is like, I am responsible for this and this is good. Right. Yes. But then you take one step back from it and you say, what does that switch turn on anyways? And all of a sudden yeah. it's like, Oh, it, it's, I don't know. It's making, you know, I don't know, Chinese crap. It's making, yeah. um, you know, uh, an abortion facility tick. It's making, a, I mean, that would be, I think, a, a more extreme in that sense. But yeah. there's... Although, not uh, incidentally, that that has come up in my career mm. before. Really? Yes. You want to talk about that? Uh, I... It was very brief, but yes, there, there, was, a, uh, there was a conflict of, uh, of working at an abortion clinic. Mm. Um, and... To their credit, several people that I worked with refused. Yeah. Uh, so I was, <laughs> I was very happy to hear that. You know, it, uh-huh. it, it, it strikes me as the hopeful side of some of what you're saying, which is that if it's the case that, I mean, most people live in this fantasy land, I think, where none of our labors affect the overall running of the thing. Yeah. Right? Like the corporations, the road systems, all of this is basically a given because it forms the content of our world. Yeah. Right. It's not like an object in the world. Like the road is the stores is the world. I mean, that's, that's, that's how we've constructed it. And so in the same way that in a previous age, no one goes out there and is like, Oh, I really hope the angels are still exerting their power to keep the mountains from tumbling and the (laughs) sea from, you know, sinking or sinking, drying up. Um, in the same way, we don't look out and say, like, gosh, this all looks completely fragile and propped up by the work of human hands, and I sure hope those human hands are still working, right? Precisely because of that, there seems to be more power in the working class, which is why I think that there's an elitist fear of the working class. Because there's this understanding that even though you can manipulate things at this high level, at the end of the day, if you don't have someone to run the wire from the source to the machine, then you're toast. Yeah. Or in this case, you're not toast because the toaster doesn't turn on. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and so, and so, there's this way in which I mean, the example of the abortion clinic is is prescient. Like, um, things can be stopped at the level. Evil things can be stopped at the level of, um, or rather, it would be possible that evil things could be stopped be... at the level of construction. In the event of work. a general strike. Yes. <laughs> yes. But as is actually the case, because the work conditions that you've described are so dire it's the case that yeah maybe yeah. three catholics get the get, get that conscious the, the their their conscience tears at them and they say no and they fill their places yeah. i presume with three people who don't care yeah or, now that i mean that that is essentially it um yeah. that did not happen because our company to their credit mm. did not they gotcha. were like no we're just left the bit alone. Yeah, yeah. We're like, no, we don't want that. Yeah, yeah. Um, good on them. I, I was very happy to work there. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there's, there's a couple of things going into that. Uh, a couple of, I mean, some of it's cultural and some of it's economic. Um, 
you run into the the very obvious issue of like we've been saying yeah you need to sustain yourself so you know no one's going to pay you to go on a strike Mm -hmm. uh but there is also this this conditioning uh this this certain expectations are drilled into you Mm -hmm. this expectation that you know things take a back seat to you being at work gotcha uh that you you had better be there you you know there there are no good excuses Mm -hmm. only excuses we will tolerate um if you are asked to work two three four five weeks straight you need to be available that's what's expected if you're not if you're not willing to do it why are you even here and that's i mean somehow some way i'm not quite sure that that mentality really has gripped i would say a good chunk of i can only speak to the trades that's all that's sure all yeah but that mentality has has gripped quite a few of the trades no i, I um, see it not simply in the trades but in the whole like hustle and grind um, mentality that's oddly enough uh, seems to be the obsession of people who do the least actual <laughs> hustling and grinding of anything. You know, I'm talking. My job about... is to post a lot about yeah, hustling yeah, yeah. and grinding. <laughs> so you know, check out my YouTube channel. One of the one of the successful creative um, job creation sectors is the financial uh, sector. We're good at creating more jobs in finance, and so you'll see a lot of this in the financial community. A lot of like you know, um, sort of sheer and utter aesthetic commitment to an ideal of work for its own sake. You get up and you work and you don't care about anything else besides that. And the money is fascinating because I think, I think the reason I think it's, well, what's fascinating about it is the money is almost irrelevant. I would, yeah. I what would I mean is so. like in terms of this particular, um, way in which work is being degenerating this is not just like the pie in the sky thing which is obviously a part of it too right sure but the money is only worthwhile as a symbol of how much you work and how little you do anything else and how you are always on and how you are always hustling and you're always grinding and you take no sabbath and and i'm sure you're familiar with 100 percent accurate yeah Uh, (laughs) yeah it, it it the money is a thing everybody likes the money but yeah, to build on that, I think that's a very good and accurate analysis of the situation. We we have elevated the the laser like focus on productivity <clears throat> to the detriment of any and all other things as as our cardinal virtue. It yeah. is the virtue that has replaced all other virtues. Is like how how much do you ignore your wife and children? <laughs> it better be a lot, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's funny. This is true. This even affects Catholic circles. Like it becomes a kind of uh, an in-joke for working people to, you know, say, oh, yeah, I haven't seen my kids in a while. And this is only like superficially a complaint. It's in fact a, a boast. Yeah. Yeah. And it's I, it's, I, I it's, it. uh, it's like some sort of cousin of the humble brag, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so so it, it seems like there's this imitation of the very machines that are replacing us yeah it's it's an imitation and it is being actualized uh more and more as we speak yeah if they could make a robot to do what i do they absolutely would oh totally um and one day maybe they will but i mean bricklayers are already on the docket as our truck drivers yeah no it's uh 
and now uh, I do not know the name of the of the program. So you'll have to forgive me. I should have figured this out. So <laughs> but put it below. Yeah, but huh, yeah, link in the description. But uh, th- there is a, a system that they are now rolling out in uh, certain places that I'm not entirely sure how it works because I've never worked anywhere that actually implemented it. But I have heard of it being implemented or talked about being implemented. Yeah. And it, it, it is essentially a way to track your production uh, versus a baseline average. So they would get your, I suppose, median productivity and through some number of variables, and then they would be able to chart based on progress reports or, you know, seeing what you have done and recording it and adding it to some, some spreadsheet somewhere Uh, uh, and measure and see if you have reached the production to which you are capable of reaching. That's right. Are you operating at peak efficiency? Right, right. Or is there some reason that you were not operating at peak efficiency? Uh, You know, rendering you effectively a machine, although they have not replaced you with a machine, they will make you one. Right, right. Uh, This seems to be something people are confused about because they have this idea. It's a very romantic idea. And I think I was prey to it for a while. So, you know, no harm, no foul here. Um, But it's the idea that the way that things get mechanized and automated is that you have a human workforce that's sort of chugging along, using its skills, happily conversing. And then some scientist over here who's just thinking up this machine that can do it all better. And then at some point, the scientist figures that out and he says, sorry, factory, we don't need 30 of you guys. We've got this machine. It's close, but it's not the truth. So what happens is what's actually happened in the history of the Industrial Revolution is that the first thing that happens is that habits are put in place to automate the motions of people. So long before there's any machines, you have the division of labor, right? So you say, okay, you are no longer going to have an integrated task where you create something or even a significant amount of something. You simply do this repeated task over and over again, and then this person does this part of it, and this person does that part of it, and you're all alienated from the actual commodity that's being produced. Um, But precisely because your work has become drudgery, now it's capable of being seen as a system of repeatable parts, which through the use of fossil fuels, then can uh, it, it creates the necessary uh, conditions for imagining uh, an actual machine. So in short, people have to first become machines in order for to be efficaciously replaced by a machine. This sure. is the actual You'd have to history. automate the process in order to come up with a machine <laughs> with that can auto- do an automated process. Exactly, exactly. And, so and you this- see where they skipped the middle point, the Luddites smashed all the loops. <laughs> so. <laughs> right, exactly. And so I, I, I see this interesting thing happening in, in the work culture that you're speaking about, which is that we've basically set the machine as the standard. And people have not just submitted to this in a out of necessity. But they have actually habituated themselves to saying, I want to be like that gold standard. I want to be like the machine. So the same kind of, this is the tough part about societies. It always kind of rises and falls together. And there's unfortunately not a lot of bad guys without many, 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 many bad guys, or at least weak guys. Uh, And in this case, it's like that same motivation that's present in the one who wants to track all of your movements and you know, compare them to some baseline efficiency that they're setting 
is in fact the same motivation that's having that person say, I get in there and I hustle and I yep. grind and I succeed and I'm the best because they're both striving for an optimum, um, which is not set by the standards of man, but by the standards of production itself, yes. the, the machine itself. And and there is, yeah, and it, it is bound up in, in this idea, I'm sure, uh, of saying, well, I am irreplaceable. I go in, I do this, mm. I work hard, I work long hours, you know, mm-hmm. you I am important. Like yeah. I am fundamentally irreplaceable. And for now, perhaps. Yeah. But yeah. you know. Well, this is this is a little bit of a sidetrack, but but this this was what all the humanities people thought before um what was the AI thing they made? Chat something. Oh uh Chatbot. Chat uh what is it, GPT? Chat yeah. GPT. Yeah, yeah. So 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 the humanities folks who knew all this stuff about the world because we've read all the books and write papers about it said, well, this can't happen to us because we are irreplaceable. We write, we think, we string words together. And of course, we now know that the same thing that we have been essentially afflicting on the working class for hundreds of years has now come home to roost and is now (laughs) happily afflicting the academic class such as they are. I mean, it's really fascinating. At this point, schools are irrelevant because 90% of people can use AI to fake some mediocre assignment. But I bring this up because what, what, um, the process is actually the same. It's just that we don't want to believe it, right? Which is that you have to be involved in an inhuman and sort of, um, an inhuman mode of drudgery in order to be the successful object of automation. And so we know this with all of the all of the trades, we know this with all of the um, all the sort of physical aspects of production, but we never believed that we could become so boring in the humanities, so rote in writing, <laughs> so completely predictable in terms of like political papers and responses, so absolutely like drudges of the word that the word itself would be available to a robotic <laughs> automation. I mean, we deserved this. You see what I'm saying? Yes. We deserve this. And now it's a weird world because basically we have done through a kind of automating process, we've established the conditions which for most of humanity were very normal, which is that only a few people, you know, a very small percentage were doing any kind of academic or intellectual work. So it's almost like the pretense is over in some ways. It's like you'll have thought and then you'll have robots. I guess that's (laughs) the world we paid for. I don't know. (laughs) But anyways, that's just, uh, that's the, that's just to say that we're, um, no one is immune. No, there there is no immunity. Eventually, we will have a uh, fully automated society in which man is an optional. Uh, it's like we'll be downloadable content. Well, that's the know? ideal, we'll right? Just, I mean, I was reading something where I forget the percentage, and I really apologize. It was it was I believe over half of uh, things that happen on the internet are actually robotic. So they're automated processes. There's robots that don't know that other robots are robots talking to each other. And so yeah. you, and so in that little image, right, you get the idea, and it's actually for me a very hopeful idea, that at some point the internet just becomes robots talking to each other and everyone just looks a little bit to the right and is free just because of that, that very fact. Um, it can go on, you know. It'd be like the end of the Martian Chronicles. Where? I don't know. Oh, uh, it's a series of, I guess it is a book, but it's a series of vignettes, I guess. Uh, by Ray Bradbury about mm. Mars and they build, they, they colonize and build this very technologically advanced society. And then, um, everyone leaves 
And the, the last bit of the book is describing these automated processes continuing, mm-hmm. uh, but no one's there. Wally is my fr- is my framework. Uh, it shows you how excellent how, how highbrow I am. <laughs> uh, I love Wally. One hundred yes. So the work called scathing indictment of uh, of late capitalist materialism. No, it's really great. It's just a sad that. The and only... I mean that unironically. No, I love no, that movie. No, it's fantastic. <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, it's weird. Like the arts succeed precisely as you typically as as critical of status quo society, and so it's just very weird that we have. And maybe it's just to be expected that it's like this outlet for critique, so we can all go to sure. the movies. Well, we can't go to the movies anymore, but back when we could go yeah. to the movies, we'd back go to the in the movies, day, and we'd watch a critique of the very society we live in, and and then we go back. But anyways, you're saying that work is degraded in these senses, right? It no yes. longer is something that people identify with as persons, no. um, and it is beset by a kind of imitation of the machine both from above and from below and in terms of people's motivation and also in terms of people's expectation and so it seems like the successful person in this environment is kind of a psychopath like the person who does best in this environment is the person that can most successfully say i don't care about anything else i don't have ties to family i don't have geographic location i um, am willing to not have a conscience like to not think in particular um, but to simply um yeah, to simply be moved by other forces to yeah. do whatever works in front. So there's of you. a couple of things to unpack in what you just said that are that are quite true uh, that I that I've noticed in my career, um, which I, I think I've been in electrical work for almost eleven years. Eleven years this year. Um, the yes, <laughs> a hard yes, and. It, and this is why it's such a crisis and it's near and dear to my heart because for, for everything I'm saying, I hope none of this comes off. Like I don't very much love my fellow tradesmen Mm -hmm. and my fellow workers. I love them very much. Mm -hmm. And that's why I care so much about this. Um, it, it's heartbreaking to see the, the multi-tiered crisis in, in this class and in these people's lives as they attempt to bend and contort themselves into a shape they are not meant to be in to fulfill goals they're not meant to fulfill for people who don't care about them Mm -hmm. and for a system that 100% doesn't care about them. Mm -hmm. Um, I I would be interested, I don't have the number, but I would be interested to see the divorce rate. Sure. Uh, Because I can tell you that it it is not uncommon at all. Yeah. I would be interested to see all of these metrics because it is simply not, if you are, if, and unless you are, I guess it's not completely impossible, but I would say on balance, it is not conducive to maintaining healthy relationships no. to attempt to fit yourself into the mold that you're expected to take. Um, and I mean, I've noticed it over time, just anecdotally, mm-hmm. it, there seems to be a large percentage of, of, of these problems. Um, substance abuse is another problem. Sure. And, and, and then the, <laughs> the bane of my existence, the, the seeming out of nowhere multiplication of travel jobs, mm. 
uh, where, as you were saying, I have no geographic ties. It's getting to be that way. Uh, Trades, it used to be, I suppose, that you worked for a local contractor who did local work for a particular community. Now, contractors, like I suppose everything else, have gotten larger and larger and larger, and the their scope of work has grown larger and larger and larger to the point that you could theoretically, as a tradesman, work for a company headquartered seven states away mm-hmm. uh, and be sent to another state seven states away in the opposite direction. <laughs> um, All right. And uh, and I, I guess I guess in a way that's unavoidable, mm-hmm. uh, as as the the scopes of these jobs gets larger and larger and larger as we build bigger and bigger things. Yeah. Uh, how do you marshal the army of labor that is needed to build that? Yeah. Well, you draw from a bigger pool, right. and what is the biggest pool you can draw from? Everywhere. Yeah. yeah. So you have these these large corporations. Um, <clears throat> pulling, just dragging a net across as much territory as they can conceivably do it to and pulling people from all over to go to communities that they don't know, don't understand, and don't care about to build things that they don't need. Right, right. And that seems to have been, it seems to be a trend. I, I've noticed just, and like I said, I have no numbers. It's just noticing yeah. yeah that that there the the amount of of jobs i see that are requiring 50 to 100 percent travel uh have consistently gone up mm-hmm. uh there is this greater and greater expectation that you will not set down roots that you will pick up and you will move yeah. that you will go where you're needed yeah. uh, and i think this afflicted other trades earlier than mine sure um i know welder i know welders have that issue quite a bit i've talked to several welders and if you want to actually make a good living welding, you are going to travel. Mm-hmm. You are going to pipelines. You're going to wellheads. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're going to move and you're going to do it seasonally mm-hmm. because the work isn't all year. Yeah. You know, it's fascinating. Everything you're discussing, it just sounds like you're describing the army. You mean you use the term, <laughs> the army of uh, laborers, but I'll, I'll just briefly bring up what struck me. Number one that it has to grow as the kind of imperial ambitions of people grows, that the workforce is increasingly beset by problems like substance abuse, uh, divorce, suicide, which does afflict the military, um, and, and that it, there is a um, kind of essential disconnect of people from the common good. So in the military, there's a sense that you serve, you protect and defend the Constitution from enemies, foreign and domestic, but that's an abstract commitment. And essentially, like this war or that war or this conflict, you have no particular commitment to beyond the fact that um, it's what was decided and you're getting paid to do it, right? Yeah. And that you, you, need, you need the work. Um, so it seems like the, what you're seeing happening to the trades now is sort of prefigured in the militarization of our culture. And I'm not prefigured. It's just, I think an aspect of the militarization of the culture. And I I think this even goes to the um, kind of attitude that's expected of laborers now of especially trades, but I think laborers generally, which is a kind of extreme of commitment 
mm-hmm. and an extreme pride in one's like physical capacity for performing the job without any kind of uh, intellectual investigation to whether the job is worth performing. It's like that's how I would have basically described like <laughs> an army guy. No, maybe not every army guy. Not my dad, for instance. But <laughs> but there's this there's this ideal, right? Like you know, when, when army people get get together, they always have some other part of the army that fulfills this. That they're just like the meatheads. That like <laughs> they don't know. They're really strong and really dumb, and that's perfect. That's what you want in a soldier. Um, but it seems like that ideal in the military has sort of trickled down into culture at large and kind of blurred that line between citizen and soldier because if you're doing what you say you're doing which is upholding the physical infrastructure by which we survive as a country if that's in fact the case uh, which i still want you to talk more about but if that's the case then you know you're kind of splitting hairs to say that that's different than um uh, affecting our survival through the destruction of enemies yes uh no that i I think i think that's i think that's correct i i think in (laughs) In some ways, we're all we've all been drafted, uh, whether mm-hmm. we like it or not. Mm-hmm. Because yes, uh, it it is an element of I guess you could say national security to marshal the necessary number of people mm-hmm. to sustain the basic infrastructure that allows the nation to continue operating. Yeah, and they they it is treated as such. Um, mm-hmm. Now, they can't directly coerce you, right? But they have constructed soft power systems to do that for them. Like what? Um, the, well, the most obvious one is is the idea that you need the money. Yeah, you need currency to exchange for basic goods. Yeah, but even then, I would say that's not enough. Uh, at one time, I'm sure it was, but uh, not to get too cliche, but selling you things you don't need, you know, to continue manufacturing desires. Uh, so that you need more yeah. so that they can get you to work longer. Totally. <laughs> because if you pared down your desires and learn to live with less, you wouldn't need to work more. Uh, it's only when you believe you need what you can't have or don't have the money to get mm-hmm. that you feel this desire to forego basic goods like family mm-hmm. or or setting down roots to get it. Yeah. Uh, you, you're describing what I think a lot of people feel about... Um, the working class in America, which is that, you know, obviously there's this turn within conservative politics to like take that mantle up. We're now the working class party. Mm-hmm. We're the working class people. <laughs> um, but it's obviously a scarcely concealed disdain for the actual habits of of the working class. Oh, it, it is complete <clears throat> cynical politicking, and it's insulting. Sure. And uh, yeah, I have strong opinions about this. <laughs> but it's but it seemed to me that like there's 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 sort of a unified thing that happens that you've just described. I think I'm just trying to put some meat onto it, which is that um, why is it that the why is it that the people whom we consider to be the working class and the poor poorer class are not are utterly unlike the romantic vision that the sort of conservative politicking presents right which you know watch any campaign ad okay so it's a noble person who lives for his family who um, has values from an older america and is applying them today etc etc who's who's sort of patriotic etc and what he's actually doing is He's on his phone all the time. I mean, you can talk about what we're actually doing. It's it's a constant 
stream of advertisement of products. And the poor are the most likely to be high consumers of advertisement, of constant advertisement. Yeah. Uh, Illich, well, they can't filter it out. There's no way to escape it. <laughs> Illich <laughs> makes, captive audience. Illich, yeah, yeah. Illich makes this point. Um, um, yeah, it's why when <laughs> it's why whenever you go to a place that you have to be, there's a TV there. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're like at the DMV and it's like... Yeah, it's TV blaring at you. <laughs> you can't escape. Illich makes this point that what wealth looks like in a industrial society, especially, I mean, he's talking about our own, is not the massive use of everything. It's not massive amounts of consumption. It's the freedom and ability to not use everything, to not constantly be consuming, to live somewhere where you're not underneath a giant flashing advertisement. Um, and we have this idea that what wealth looks like always has to be translated into a kind of um, um, accessibility, availability, everything else. It's actually precisely the opposite. Poverty in America is a excessive availability to everyone marketing everything all the time to you. I mean, this seems obvious to me. It, yes. Uh, and so the, the kind of conservative takeover of the working class wants to make them this like um, this like hero of a bygone era so that that it can fit with like the sort of basic moralistic categories um, that drive conservatism. But, you know, meet meet these people, you know? Yeah. And, and, well, there's no interest in that. Yeah. Then you would have to confront everything face to face. I do. I do find it uh, interesting that that they have finally figured out that they can uh, pander to the working class and combine it with the neoliberal policies that exploit the working class, and it's just a one hundred percent win for them. Yeah, no, they're doing uh, great. They're yeah, doing, doing great, great you, job. You, you make them <laughs> greedy as possible. You mm -hmm. make them as uh, beset by a vision of something they don't have, um, but then you also maintain them in a relative lack, so that unlike others. They have to work for it. Exactly. They have to work for it, yeah. And it, like I said, you know, it's it's um, it's insulting. It's exploitative on the face of it, yeah. really. And it's it betrays a cynicism and, and a genuine lack. Not that I think anybody actually thought they cared, but, you know, they, they really don't. They have nothing but, but disgust for these people. They don't love them. They yeah. don't care about them. Mm -hmm. They are uh, a, a means mm -hmm. to an end. That in being the betterment of whoever, whoever is using them. And, it, and it's a sad state because there really is a crisis. These yeah. people are able to be, to, be, to be brought in to these coalitions because they can sense that there is something wrong, that mm -hmm. things are not meant to be this way. It's just that they're not being offered any actual solutions. And because there's no interest or money in a solution, you know. Right, right. I think this is why the popes sort of started talking about poverty as spiritual poverty. Um, by the pontificate of John Paul II, he was always very insistent that whenever he named poverty, he would talk about poverty in terms of the lack of uh, the ability to fulfill material needs then immediately we would say but there's there's a spiritual poverty that's just as important they are inseparable yeah, yeah. they are absolutely inseparable and i think we have a, <clears throat> we have a um we have a great spiritual poverty in which you know because you've heard this uh, talking point i'm sure which many people will say well look look at the country what's wrong with it 
in America, the poor are fat, right? This is the standard line. I've heard it ever since I was a kid. Sure. And so what makes America so great? Poor people in America have smartphones. They have smartphones. <laughs> exactly. They have smartphones and they're fat. And, and this is somehow, I think, held up as like a, unlike other countries in which poverty involves the actual yeah. lack of the ability. But to notice fulfill. that as the poor, as, as smartphones multiply among the poor and all of their public schools get tablets, the Silicon Valley elite send their kids to Waldorf schools where mm -hmm. all the toys are made of natural wood right. and you're not allowed to look at a screen. Right, right, right. Like, <laughs> no, that's exactly right. It's like, it is true that in terms of the material acquisition of more stuff, we have quite a system for providing that. But it's also true that the kind of stuff that we allow our poor to accrue is precisely the stuff that makes them fat. No, and I'm saying fat in the sense of I'm pointing out the obvious, right? That it's a unhealthy things state. that are fundamentally healthy. <laughs> yeah, it's so, not. Yeah, it, it's not. It shouldn't really be a point of bragging to say, oh, in America, we feed poor people really awful stuff. Yeah, and it makes yeah. them unhealthy and yeah. they die of heart disease. <laughs> Progress. Yeah, like, no, exactly. It's, it's that we monetize poverty, right? It becomes yeah. a way of creating a certain market of goods that can be sold at a much cheaper rate. Yeah, it absolutely, it's, it is its own market. And th this goes back to that initial question of, well, if this is true, that work today is beset by this workaholic attitude and how it's, if it's true that it's creating in people a kind of um, displacement and alienation from all the basic goods of life that you would hope for people, why is it that we have this at the same time, seemingly, a culture of extreme laziness. Everything people point to and they say people don't want to work. We all are willing to jump on welfare. And you already answered this in terms of the, the, the movement to extremes, right? Which is like if as a person the options are increasingly whittled down to like work like a slave or, or like work like a slave, work like a white collar person, or don't do anything at all and take the government check you might very well take the government check. So yeah. I, I admit that that's part of the solution to this mystery. But the other thing is that there's a, um, there's a, mm, call it a structural reason for the maintenance of a non-working population, um, which is basically that production needs consumption. Yes. Uh, and what we have been doing it seems increasingly, is maintaining a class of people in a unnatural state, which is basically like you're not going to work. Maybe we should back up a sec. Work is good, right? Yes. Work is healthy. In fact, people are meant to work. Yeah. To not work is to flirt with mental disorder. Yes. Um, I, I've never met anybody anyone who this. sat at home <laughs> all the time and was like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Which is the craziest part about this system, which is like we all know that the result is disordered. And yet we all are willing to say, well, working with the hope and the dream of never having to work again is somehow ordered. It's like, no, no, no. <laughs> like if, if the result is disordered, then the means of attaining it is obviously disordered. We can't, we can't just, okay. They wonder why everybody has, has ceased to enter the, why, why I say everybody, why a large number of people have ceased to enter the workforce. Well, you told everybody that the point of working was to reach a point where you didn't have to. Right. But now that point is like right over here. Yeah. yeah and yeah. work looks like it really <laughs> sucks. So uh, just, just skip that part totally. and we can get to the part where we don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What's work for? It's for just carving out through the force of your will that little bit of time where you can smoke weed and play Xbox. Exactly. So, I did. so if you could just smoke weed and play Xbox. <laughs> I'm there. <laughs> just do that. Like, <laughs> 
especially now as as all of the the substructures that I mean, they weren't really they haven't been there for a while, but we were coasting on fumes uh, of that were encouraging people to uh, to go forth and, and have families and set down roots. Uh, we finally, I guess, collectively realized that we we cut that tree at the root and it is fully shriveled and died now. And so nobody feels that 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 particular motivation doesn't work anymore. Yeah. So if you're just going to be on your own or you're just yes. going to be with one other person that you have happened to have met, yes. but you will not have a family. Yes. Why wouldn't you smoke weed and play Xbox? Right, right, right. You can do that together. Right. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's social. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it strikes me that, you know, for I'm thinking of Foucault here. So he, he basically sees this as the maintenance of a permanent underclass that in the absence of Christianity in the absence of, um, well, he probably doesn't believe in this, but it seems to me that in the absence of a common pursuit of an agreed upon good, like we're all after something here, um, it's actually very helpful to those people that do want to be um, good, not for its own sake, not for love of God, but to be normal and to fit in and to be superior to others. It doesn't really work if everyone is at the same social station, right? <laughs> uh, because so so what you do is you maintain a class as the constant reference point. So it's like you don't want to become them. Right? Sure. So you want to create a bunch of people whose lives are obviously sad and who who it's they survive, right? They they um un, in an un but a specifically unhealthy manner, in order to enforce certain behaviors uh, of another class by hanging a threat over them, which is basically, well, you don't want to become like them, right? You don't want to drop yeah. out into this. Um, and so it has this kind of social utility to maintain an underclass in terms of the establishment of norms in high, in upper classes. Yes. How do you, you know, how do you establish what's respectable? Well, first you have to have a reference point of what's unrespectable. Right. Which like, as long as you all <clears throat> actually believe in God, you don't need to worry about these sorts of systems because you can say, well, I mean, don't know about respectable, but what I ought to do is obey his commandments and sure. get to heaven, right? But where that's absent, it kind of rises up and takes the place. It's like, well, I don't know what, what I'm good for. I don't know what human life is for. I don't know if I'm going anywhere when I die, but I sure don't want to be that guy, <laughs> right? So Effectively, yes. And I also think there's just a very practical element that um, the maintenance of a non-working class is it creates a lot of jobs, Right? It creates a lot of therapists. It creates a lot of professions that uh, administer to them. Um, it builds up its own structure of care, as it were, yep. that is entirely devoted to um, extrinsically and remedially maintaining an unhealthy life, a disordered life in existence. Right, Because like we said, if there was nothing else going on to just stop a class of people from working would involve obvious social problems i mean i don't know if you've met a male above the age of like 15 but <laughs> they should work i they, think they need something to do <laughs> so the the trick then is to create a population of people who who are in that unnatural condition and so you're basically risking um violence within your society you're risking disorder within your society and what that creates is a whole regime of care work um, that is kept in place by the constant need. You're, you're constantly producing the need of management of a class. And so it's it's this weird and, and very vampiristic yep. uh, situation where an entire management class kind of relies on a 
jobless and, and hopeless class, really, in order to keep its job. Keep going. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's always relational, isn't it? Right? It's always, we kind of live and fall together. We, we rise and fall together. Yeah. yeah. Ultimately, seems. we're all in it together, whether we like it or not. <laughs> so tell me a little more about the systems that uphold our country, our way of life, our world. Do you really think it's as unsustainable as you say? I do. I absolutely do. Uh, not only do I think it's unsustainable, I think it is prone to an immediate catastrophic collapse in any moment. Why? Uh, we, we live, every moment we live is a moment at which we have rolled the dice and not failed hmm. yet. <laughs> um, and I, I don't, sorry, this will be a bit of a tangent. I don't think people understand how fragile, how dangerous the the status quo is mm. the 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 resting existence of just being alive in in i'll just to say the united states but in the broader industrialized world it, mm. it, it does not matter where you live the very act of existing at any given moment is fraught with peril mm. uh and and i say people don't realize it but i think maybe somewhere they do there the the steady uptick of nervous disorders. Mm. There's something to that. That's not accidental. I don't think they're ever diagnosed. I think it's real. Mm. And I think part of it is this internalized sense that we are in actual real danger all the time. Mm. And the only thing protecting us is people who we do not know, doing things we do not understand to processes we do not understand, Mm -hmm. but that if these processes fail, we will die. Yeah. Um, and this internalized, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but I do feel like there is some level of internalized anxiety that that is derived from that. Anxiety is the word. Yeah. Yeah. Aquinas talks about anxiety is the fear of the unseen evil. So you don't know, you don't know what it is, but you know that it's bad for you. Exactly. And precisely because you can't objectify it, it becomes not the object of fear the way it's like, oh, that's a grizzly bear and it's going to eat me. No, it's this nameless, like gnawing dread that Mm -hmm. in any moment something could go wrong but yeah. you don't know what it is yeah, yeah, you like, don't even have the vocabulary with which to express right. the kind of fear the, that just lies around low level all the time i'm going to give um, you a tangible example of this and then you give me one sure. from from your line cuz for 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 me this comes from conversations with the doherty's where they look at farming and say look this has been the most heavily industrialized part besides maybe fighting uh, <laughs> growing food has been probably the object of the most in- that's a whole other thing that we can get into uh it has the most industrial inputs you might say which meet precisely those conditions you're describing namely they are coming from processes which no one person is properly in control of or can understand evenly even um, they are being operated by people who do not know the whole or see the whole and do not even necessarily love the whole. Sure. Uh, and they are um, fragile, usually dependent on fossil fuels, which are running out, and usually dependent on the passing on of skill. 
So what they'll point on, uh, what they'll point to is the average age of the farmer, right? As uh, farming has become more industrialized, less and less and less people have farmed. I mean, it used to be a significant majority of Most Americans would would have been farming sure. at some scale, on um, some level. I mean, even as as late as the the twenties and thirties, to have a small farm in addition to working mm-hmm. a normal job was not unheard of. Right, right, right. Um, but now it's such a bare percentage. I think it was like five or six, if that, um, of people who are actually like, I'm a farmer. Um, and part of this is because what farming means now is the operation yeah. of ginormous military <laughs> machines. Exactly. So not everyone wants to do that, turns out. Farming means <laughs> driving a tank. Yes. So this is why people are often different. confused when they listen to the conservative love for the rural and the and the sort of nobility of the American uh, you know, heartland. And then they get out there and it's just some like obscene people blowing things up and, and screaming <laughs> around a fire while they're drunk. And it's like, ah, yes, the people. And it is. These are the people. But increasingly, farming attracts the people who love combustion. Yes. Because it's a product of combustion. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. Combustion and large machinery. <laughs> That's pretty much farming in a nutshell. Right. What did you expect? Someone who like loves to feel the the loam beneath their feet and smiles at an earthworm as it does its job? Come on. Like, yeah. They're, they're... That ain't going to get it done. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, so they point out this industrialization and the way that it becomes more and more fragile because when you have so few farmers and the life is so inhuman that you also have a really drastic rate of farmer suicide um, and that this isn't like slowing down. This is no. pretty normal. As with all point. things, it's picking up the pace. <laughs> And so there's the obvious fear that comes with this. It says, well, if we actually rely on fewer and fewer, older and older people who are more and more likely to kill themselves, and that is the source from which we are feeding ourselves, um, then yeah, anxiety is a natural result, I think. And you don't even have to know that. You can just sort of feel that. I think you can intuit it. Because if you drive, I mean, it's easy. You drive past, you know. 600 700 acres of corn and just ask like how is all this turning into food for everyone and if you can't immediately answer the question um except by imagining large-scale machinery then you're alienated from even understanding the means of your own survival and once you're alienated in that way you get nervous i mean yeah makes sense so all right there's my example no it's a good example it's a very good example um my example i mean there's a few that i could jump to that that are very easy um power plants mm. a nuclear power plant especially no, you know the average person does not understand i don't understand how you know you get from raw radioactive material to power mm-hmm. uh, i know vaguely how you do it with heating up rods and then using the steam to turn a turbine to run a motor that generates electricity but i don't understand the chemical processes that are involved i don't understand what kind of safeguards they have I don't know what kind, I don't know what a failure would look like or how I would know if one happened. Mm -hmm. I do know that a failure would be catastrophic. Mm -hmm. And I know that there is absolutely nothing I can do about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I am for my safety. I lived near a power plant. Mm -hmm. Um, I say near, within an hour, within an hour. Um, And (laughs) as I drove to work, sometimes you would see signs that say, uh, you know, evacuation route. Mm-hmm. in the event of a meltdown. Mm-hmm. 
And to pass that sign every day, it was this constant reminder that there are these people that I don't know doing these things I don't understand upon whom my survival is dependent. Yeah, and that's the key. And, I think people can hear this sometimes and think like, okay, you're just you're just frightened of things that are big and like yes (laughs) but it's it's that it's that we have these large-scale means of providing the means of survival without necessity to it like we don't have to live this way that that would really be what it comes down to is it doesn't have to be this way it wasn't this way for for most of human history uh, your survival was dependent at least partially on your own agency, mm-hmm. at least to a majority on your own agency. Now, there is just this endless list of things that could happen mm-hmm. that you just, you probably don't even know about most of them. Uh, to give another example, power plants was it was low-hanging fruit. Um, uh, the chemical processes that are run, that are run in uh in factories is in just several factories this isn't just in a s- certain locations it's all over anywhere where there is a, a an industrial uh some industrial infrastructure are are incredibly dangerous mm-hmm. and i think people kind of know i mean i guess if you told somebody chemical plant they would instantly be like i don't know about that mm-hmm. um but i don't think people maybe know quite how tenuous it is uh, and how dangerous and volatile some of these things are to the point that, you know, it's one large scale failure away from an, from a catastrophic explosion Mm -hmm. that would destroy the landscape beyond recognition. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's, (laughs) it's one stray tornado away from, from something pretty bad or as we got to see here one one train derailment away yes from that's i i can't believe i didn't bring that up <laughs> the vinyl chloride yes man. yeah so we're all drinking perfect yeah perfect example um uh oddly enough the the main one of the main ingredients of pvc pipe which i run quite mm-hmm. a bit of yeah, that's right. uh getting back to my own partial culpability in this um but yes uh the 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 East Palestine train derailment was is an, is a local example mm-hmm. that that hits home pretty hard. You know, that's one train. Mm-hmm. It's one derailment of one train. Mm-hmm. That there are an uncountable number of trains carrying chemical compounds as bad or worse than vinyl chloride mm-hmm. that are probably passing who knows how many residential areas mm-hmm. at this very moment. Mm-hmm. And um, they're not currently derailing, but they will. Right, which is why we are describing anxiety and not fear. Right? Exactly. They're currently derailing. It's not fear. I'm scared of that. It's anxiety. It is this, yeah. this low-level, ever-present yeah, dread. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, every time you see a tanker roll by on the railroad tracks and you think, well, it's not killing me now, mm-hmm. but it could. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and that anxiety is fueled by the fact that technology technology is we imagine it as being fertile what i mean is we very deliberately describe like 
iPhones, for instance, as coming in generations, right? Yeah. As, if, as if the father iPhone generates like yeah. from like, can we get uh, another iPhone, right? Or we'll talk about technology evolving, right? So it goes from this sort of primitive The stage, primal iPhone. Yes. And then it develops into now. And of course, there's a lot that can be said in terms of this imaginary uh, idea that it's always going to get better and better, right? Sure. That's the Enlightenment narrative here. But what, what strikes me about our will to speak of our technological world as being fertile is that it is obviously not true. Um, man passes down technology to man, right? Yes. Uh, and what this means is that it is not simply the case that we can expect any given technology to be maintained in the future as well as it is in the present. In fact, in all likeliness, we should probably expect it to be maintained uh, less well going forward into the future yes. than, it, than it was when it was first created. Because if, as you say, all of this infrastructure relies on people to actually fix it and people to actually problem solve it and, and to maintain it at all, then when we ask the question of what will this dangerous technology hurt us will this useful technology continue to be useful will this bridge that's holding up these semi trucks you know never collapse we get so caught up in the idea that it's the things the products that are doing it that we forget to look at the human person and say okay as essential as the load bearing capacity of concrete is the capacity of a sun who does not know the load-bearing capacity of concrete to receive that information from a father, right? It might be his actual father, yeah. right? Or it might be someone above him, but someone who has the information, the learning, the knowledge, the skill necessary for the maintenance of the technological infrastructure. There has to be a successful moment of communion by which the one passes down to the other. This is the real fertility of technology that we're trying to get at when we talk about, you know, iPhone generations or whatever. It's that, it's that it does require fertility. It, it requires does. It requires the generation of skill in someone who doesn't have it from someone who does. Now, what is, when we talk about that, when we consider that as a necessary part of infra infrastructure, um, then what we're really saying is that we need ideal conditions by which the knowledge of the past is passed down to the future, right? We need the best possible cultural conditions by which sons desire to be like their fathers, by which the young receive and receive willingly the wisdom of the old and even the know-how of the old. And what terrifies me about the, the technological uh, state that we have built is that precisely to the degree that we build a technologically dependent society, we degrade those very human conditions by which the maintenance of that technology is passed down from father to son. I mean, you notice this, right? Like the farming, again, is an example. Sure. The farmer's son looks <clears throat> at his industrial farming parents and says, I want none of that, right? It is infertile. No matter what fertility you've managed to squeeze out of the fields, you have not managed to make the skills and the know-how of the one generation generate literally in the in the next and and the crisis is obvious namely very few farmers very old farmers very depressed farmers and now the crisis is it's, it's similar in trade work the average age of trade workers has continued to right. climb it's been high since i got entered the trades mm -hmm. and we're, we're just not getting replaced right 
And I think when people say these things like, oh, people don't want to work anymore, they're onto something, but they keep on placing it at this kind of like, they're right for the wrong reasons. Right. They're, they're just know. like, well, it's laziness. And, and that's the and thing. They everyone's... skip. They skip straight to the the uh, the bugbears of uh, uh-huh. American culture of, right. uh, of laziness, a sloth. Right. But, uh, it, but it's like what we don't see is that if it's the case that the next generation does not want the work of the last generation, then the crisis is in the generation that currently has the skills. Like, why is it that we are not able to generate? into the next generation why are we literally contracepted so that so that we build these large-scale machines these large-scale systems and then bemoan the in like the seeming inability for anyone to step up and say i will maintain them right i will learn the skill um but the <laughs> but it's it's, it's frustrating because the obvious re- one of the most obvious reasons is automation why because if the very things we're building are increasingly automated, then they're increasingly likely to create in the in the people who maintain them characters that no one wants to be. So what I mean is like, look, it's one thing to say, what a tragedy. Uh, the father was a carpenter with all of this skill and all of this know-how. And the son looked at the father and said, I don't want any of that, right? I want something else. Now that's a tragedy, okay? Yes. But... If the father is someone who pushes a button, right, and I, again, betraying my my lack of knowledge of automation within carpentry here, but insert automated process, then there's nothing in the father that intrinsic to his work anyways, that the son looks at it and says, I want to be that father, give me what was past that I might take it into the present. That condition I describe in which the past moves into the present is the only conditions in which we can possibly say yes this industrial system's big it's complex but don't worry because there's such a love of the younger for the older there's such a desire we really do believe that this is all good for us and we really want to keep it going keep (laughs) doing it so don't worry because the young will there is take a from burning the old desire and, to, to and keep we'll, it going. We'll maintain those power plants but, and we'll maintain those rail lines. And they love they love the trains that are carrying the vinyl chloride and they will take care of them because there is a passionate desire to be like the father in the sense. Okay, that's that is the condition where we can say, okay, yeah, we've got a technological state. It's a little bit big, but don't worry. And that is obviously, I'm being dramatic. Yeah, sure. Not the condition we live no, in. No, that would be the, the opposite, opposite of the condition that we because live in. Because the very systems we intend on building are the systems that make people boring. Yeah. And no one wants to be boring. Everyone can, <laughs> yeah. No one wants to do that. We've built a bunch of stuff that requires people to do things they just don't want to do. Right. And then the and only... you can force people to do things they don't want to do yeah. using various carrot and stick approaches for a while. But eventually people no. are just going to say, I'm kind of done with this. Exactly. You, you, you've just said you... it, which is that all that's left to you is coercion. Yeah. So once you get rid of the fecundity of generation to generation, you have to say like, OK, we can't get the kids to work. So starve them. Exactly. And I mean, you, you can see the the, the slow degra- uh, degradation of of generation from i wish to pass on this skill to you that is an intrinsic part of who i am Mm -hmm. to i wish to pass on to you the knowledge that if you do not attain some skill you won't be able to afford a car to uh to please do this we really need people to work and they're like i'm out yeah yeah um you know it goes from take this thing that is a part of me to this like veiled threat of if you want to live a comfortable material life you are going to have to do something like i did 
mm-hmm. to now where it's just a mess entirely. <laughs> no, right, right. No, I think you're right. Like the first thing is the image going from the father to the son. The second thing is passing on the wisdom of what kind of coercion they're facing out there to say, mm-hmm. son, you got to get this job to make it and you should do it for your family. Okay, that's generation two. Generation three is the guy who just did it to make it for his family, but it's now like, it wasn't worth it. <laughs> those kids are degraded, right. And, and, yeah, especially then you have the degradation of even those goods that you were extrinsically attempting to get, like family. And so then the third generation looks yeah. and says, no, I don't want it. Um, it's it's, And even I would say there's even this case where, um, you know, like here with families that have been on welfare, it's intergenerational as well. So we, mm-hmm. we think of it as this like crisis of, well, they can't find work, but that's not the case. Fathers give in my experience here uh, in this area, fathers give the wisdom of determining to go on welfare as opposed to a job to their sons. Sure. And they imitate in that way. And it makes total sense because it it really does. If you don't make over $16 an hour here, you might as well be on welfare. And guess what? Any job like well, those jobs aren't really there. It's it's the problem. I mean, this just doesn't exist unless you have great geographic mobility, which again, poverty seems to preclude in the first place. Yeah. Okay. We need we need you to be a uh, a traveling worker. Uh, we will not provide you a means of travel. <laughs> you need to provide your own means of travel, and also be in Wyoming in about two days. Yeah, <laughs> like, right, right. Uh, yeah, it, it's. I had a thought, and it just well, it just seems to me like sometimes it can seem really romantic or idealist to describe a no growth policy, to say no, no, no. The problem is that we are attempting to carve out the means of survival in a manner which accrues capital at a, at a really high level. And because this is an implicit goal in all our operations, we're doing things that are far too complex, right? Like the reason that we are, that we can't even conceive of the idea of limiting our consumption of having, you know, just like wood stoves instead of electric grids of having basically a sort of uh, a more um, a means of survival that more depends on us and a a direct or a more communal um, relationship to the surrounding environment. Okay. The, The reason that this seems that this has been sort of impossible is because we've built up a world in which when we go about our survival, we're, always also doing something else which is profiting um capital we're, we're always yep. involved in systems where that is the other goal and where we can get rid of that goal then you can see older forms of life as being possible but wherever we still have that goal as part of the structure of society then then we really can't but it often gets seen as romantic that you're gonna like you know pull back that you're going to do something simpler that you're not going to get in the rat race that you're going to um you know consume less live with less do less um and it's seen as a sort of i don't know like um a weak and cowardly backing away from the full demands of the day let's just say that but what i hope is clear to people listening to you is that the um you know, that kind of life that's very simple is also the kind of life that's very sustainable in the sense that the kinds of activities it demands from people are character forming. They're not automated processes that you um, push button start for the sake of a wage. Um, they are not ways of acting like machines for the sake of payment. 
but they are work that procures for you the means of survival and makes you into a certain kind of person. And I'm not trying to be overly complex here. I'm saying it makes you strong, it makes your body strong. It gives you certain skills with your hands from splitting wood to planting seeds. to that have an obvious utility. Yeah. And that when a younger generation looks to an older generation, they see in it something imitatable, right? Sure. Whereas to go back to the beginning of our conversation, someone that is simply in marketing, you know, even though extrinsically they might be the best dad in the world to their kids or the best, you know, elder figure to their neighborhood, um, in so far as their work is considered, no one knows what they do. And it's not apparent in their body. It's not apparent in their habits. It's not apparent in their skills. I mean, with com- computer guys, this is actually pretty sad because if you do computers 10 years ago, you don't even... You don't even have the right language anymore to pass on skills. Like, what are you going to do? Pass on the old like forms of coding? No, like it's done. It's over. So, so which brings a whole nother layer into the uh, passing on of knowledge. If as technology, yeah, you know, develops in an exponential way, there's not time. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. We've outstripped our ability to pass on knowledge entirely. Right, and so the the movement to call them older systems, but it's really systems of procuring the means of survival that are at the same time, at one and the same time, character building, is not like, uh, what's the word, like um, sort of a libertarian, get off the grid kind of motivation. The motivation is actually, okay, how do we create systems that aren't so fragile? Like, Because what's the point of saying... Well, I guess the point is that you can make a bunch of money right now and not yeah. care, care about the future. <laughs> yeah, if you if you have no concern for the broader future, yeah, yeah now is the time to act. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> make your money. Uh, but yeah, I think it's inconceivable to, uh, I say inconceivable, at least hard to imagine, even you know, for me, for anyone, that society was relatively stable for you know, thousands of years mm-hmm. with only slow and measured Mm-hmm. progress in mm-hmm. any given area mm-hmm. and that what multiple generations of your family going as far back as you could think did roughly the same thing you did mm-hmm. and uh now generation to generation is almost un- unrecognizable yeah this is uh-huh. i forget who it was that said this is the sign of a revolutionary age it might have been belloc uh that someone at the end of his life has nothing to give to someone at the beginning of his life. And we have reached that point. Mm -hmm. We have reached the point where, and you know, we bemoan the lack of respect for elders and things of that nature, but we've constructed a system in which the, the elderly have nothing to give us. Right. All of their information is out of date. Right. 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 Uh, We've, we have put an expiration date on on our own selves, you know, right. After a certain point, if you cannot attain whatever new knowledge they have decided you need to get. Mm -hmm. If you pass that point where you can easily soak up the developments, you're not really worthwhile. Yes. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so I think the call to, to cease um, with cease the maintenance of growth as a goal um, and to ask instead for the maintenance of generation. Okay. What, what best serves the continuation of life from one generation to the next. When that becomes the goal, then you start to, I think, see the sense of what might otherwise seem like very radical out there ideas. Sure. Um, this is something we're always struggling with is like from the perspective of modernity, which is an insane place. It is. It is. Then we sound insane. sort of radical. But like when the things we're advocating are things like, you know, growing food, you know, 
It's like, that's probably the least radical. I mean, etymologically, it is radical. But besides that, it's the least radical thing you can imagine. This is what people did. Can you imagine, like, if they didn't know about modernity, if you, you know, showed up in, like, 13th century and were like, yeah, I'm pretty cool. I'm a urban gardener. <laughs> like, what? Who is this guy? <laughs> yeah. What are you doing here? <laughs> yeah, it... it um modernity from the outside looking in is is a quite an insane place yeah. um in which we've abandoned all static values for eternal fluidity <laughs> yes yeah well and for the for the profit of of some and not all i think yes for the profit of very few yeah uh, well i hope you're all good and depressed sam yeah uh, anywhere yeah. anywhere's a hope for us here before we uh um and uh, I'll, I'll try to summarize and then we can maybe give you the give you the last word which is which is basically that um, there is a degradation of work in our culture across the board. And it's seen in the alienation of man um, from his work so that it becomes a means to an end and the work itself is not um, dignified and for the sake of... um, well, it's not a good in itself. It's just a means to an end. That's all. Uh, and this involves the imitation of machines, um, for which this is normal, right? Because they're machines. Sure. Uh, That's what they're made for. And the attempt to be like machines basically leads to the creation of two extremes, right? A class of people who can keep up and a class of people who either can't or deem it not worth their while to even try. Um, and that this increasingly forms a structure of... of our sort of political scene and that it is in no way the case that we're just going one way or the other as it were like precisely because the effort is still towards automation at a greater and greater scale we are constantly producing this binary of workaholism and no work on either side and that why and that big part of why we're doing this is because we have to because we have built machines that cannot be maintained um, apart from passing on knowledge and skill as means of our survival and yet no one wants to maintain them (laughs) because the work stinks and so we have baked into the pie as it were the necessity of means of coercion hard and soft to make sure people still maintain the means of our survival because at the end of the day no matter who you are you don't want to die (laughs) yeah more or less (laughs) um and I guess I just said, finally that that then part of the solution to this is to slow down, to back off, to find new ways and old ways of find ideas so old they look like new. Yeah, <laughs> procuring the means of survival um, such that we can assure to a greater extent generational continuity, um, as opposed to generational disruption and 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 just the constant production of anxiety as a means of life there yeah. that's my summary of what we talked about that's pretty good no summary. Kidding, I think it's pretty good <laughs> so leave, I, us with, leave us with something hopeful because you know what there's god uh, there's grace there's his angels there's his saints and so uh can't all be bleak <laughs> no no it's not bleak um never forget that christ incarnated as a man and the incarnation changes everything yeah. and that christ worked with his hands and that there is value and and inherent worth in work so long as the work is well ordered and um you know learn a skill 
apply it with responsibility and try in as insofar as you're able in whatever station of life you're in to to find a way to do that <clears throat> no matter how small it may seem you know it's been a great blessing when i've been able to use the skills i've acquired in a way that that brings glory to god and you know fully realizes my humanity in a way that a lot of it hasn't mm-hmm. and so that would be my I think don't uh don't bow out just yet <clears throat> don't huh. it's tempting I, I understand but you know if um if no one makes the effort to change the culture then then it will not be changed yeah it, it will just inevitably hurtle towards collapse and there will be no one standing in the way to stop it mm-hmm. yeah it's I said I'd give you the last word, but I won't um, because I guess I'm an egoist. <laughs> um, it's always the goods, right, that people wave in front of us in order to get us to do things. At the end of the day, no matter how shallow they are, how wrong we are about the order of things, like we've found no way to move humanity except by images of the good. And I think that, at least for me, is a sign of sort of overarching hope. Yeah. That, um, and and the challenge for us today is to be very honest about those goods. Like, okay, is is this work really fulfilling what I want? Like, am I really getting to be with my family? Am I really getting the kinds of goods that make me happy? Or am I working for enough money because I have a fear and I need as much security as I can in money or because I'm addicted to luxury goods and I'm after a jet ski for no reason. Like the Catholic tradition of the examination of conscience needs to be to applied to work. It, it should. And it's it not, very much should. it's not just about like feeling bad about ourselves, like getting guilty because somehow we're, you know, contributing to an unjust system. We, we are in an unjust system. We can all agree on that. Right? <laughs> we can get over that. Um, but the question is, how often are we lying to ourselves? I mean, the examination of conscience is to look at the truth that we already know and just to be brave enough to look at it and say, in this work that I'm doing, is it really the case that I can't do anything else? Honestly, is it really the case that I'm just totally stuck, right? Or am I too afraid to make the right move? Am I too afraid to give up luxury goods? Am I too afraid to take less? Am I too afraid to live simply? I was actually yeah. going to say something somewhat similar as I, as I heard you talking. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, don't don't be afraid. I mean, you 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 will have to prioritize the capital G good and all of the goods that are reflections of the capital G good, mm-hmm. and attempt to see through the obfuscations of everything dangled in front of you. Um, and yeah, sometimes that means some discomfort, uh, but it's okay. You'll be fine. Yeah. Um, and if you're not, you'll be dead. And then, hey, yeah. that's crazy and, to be in heaven. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, I prioritize, prioritize your family, prioritize your kids, however you can, do whatever you can to do so. Mm-hmm. And uh, I suppose this is it's a bit rote, but it's important, you know, evangelize. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the 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 number one thing to do would be to change people's hearts. If you change a 
super majority of people's hearts, then uh, we start to make a change. All right, everyone. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Mr. Pearson here. Um, I hope to have you on again, Sam. Thank you yeah, very much. I'd love to. Yeah, whenever we need to rant about the um, perils of industrial society, I'll bring <laughs> you on and we'll make it happen. Yeah. All right, have a good day, everyone. God bless.